this is Waves, a podcast from APTA Michigan. I'm Andy Wicks. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. The physical therapy profession is full of unusual and amazing opportunities to practice our craft. Today's guest is no exception to that. Dr. Katie Franklin is a physical therapist in a NICU, or neonatal intensive care unit, in a hospital in San Antonio, Texas. We talked with her about how she came to work with the littlest humans, her passion for helping others, and why the Alamo will never be forgotten. Hey everyone, my name's Katie Franklin, worst kept secret on PT Twitter. I am at Neonatal PT. Andy was kind enough to ask me to be on the Waves Michigan podcast, so I'm super excited to join y'all tonight to talk about neonatal therapy. And by the fact that you said y'all tells me that you are somewhere in the South. Where are you at? I live in San Antonio, Texas. Where (laughs) you recently famously said that the Alamo was awesome. And I have to take umbrage with that statement because I have been to the Alamo and I was underwhelmed. Oh, come on. I'm just saying. It was a lot smaller than I was expecting it to be. And, but whatever. I don't want to, I don't want to disparage your fine city because the rest of San Antonio was nice. (sighs) But we can talk about that later. I've never been to the Alamo, so I don't have Alamo-related commentary. So you automatically (laughs) fall as a point into my category because I make the rules and I just decided that now it's two against one and we win. That's fine. No, most of the time, people who come to San Antonio, it's like, oh, we got to go to the Riverwalk. We got to go do the San Antonio thing. And for a lot of us that live here, that's not what you want to do. That's not where you want to go. But Sometimes we find ourselves downtown and my sweet husband has committed that every time we have to go downtown for anything, at the end of the night, he drives me by the Alamo. Like that's, that's the end of the evening. And (laughs) it just makes my little Texan heart so happy. Oh man. I mean, I have to say when I did see it, at first we walked in, it must've been the side entrance. And I was like, this doesn't look like what I have seen all the pictures look like. What's going on? And then I realized, oh, it's not actually the front, but it is, I mean, Okay, we're going off on a tangent, but the Alamo, yes, it is an incredibly important piece of history and is very, very important to Texans. I get it. It's just surrounded by so much schlock and tourist traps. And, You're right. You know, but whatever. Right. Hey, it's not the Alamo's fault. I don't know, Andy. I'm I'm Googling pictures of the Alamo. It looks pretty okay, well, cool. Doing some so... like 360 looks around for sitting in the front of the Alamo, then you'll see what I'm talking about. anyway anyway i know i'm not winning any points for people in texas and i apologize for that you talked about neonatal pt so what the heck is that yeah so i i work at a level four NICU here in san antonio i've been doing that for three years now and my team specifically I work with babies who are as young as 22 weeks gestation so full term is 40 weeks some quick arithmetic puts that at 18 weeks early which is which is pretty phenomenal all the way up to five years old I don't see anybody older than five so I work NICU, PICU, PD, and some common diagnoses, the, the most common would be prematurity. But then we also work with any medically complex infant who is admitted to the neonatal ICU. Okay. So I'm going to ask a dumb question. As someone... Not, no dumb no. questions, Andy, no junk. You don't know, you, you don't know about <laughs> Andy's questions. Don't say that to her. <laughs> I already think he's a little dumb because he doesn't love the Alamo, but I digress. <laughs> that I do not work with peds and mm-hmm. what, so tell me what are some of the things that you do for a child who is 22 weeks gestation, 23 weeks gestation? Like what are some of the things that you can do? Because I'm a parent, but I'm like, man, those kids just kind of sit there. You know, they're just like, they're trying to grow. They're trying to keep growing like they should have yeah. been doing. So what, what are, what is the PT doing in that situation? Great question. So technology in the neonatal ICU over the past 20 years and really over the past five years has just advanced phenomenally to the point that we are able to keep 
these premature and, and really sick infants alive where previously we didn't have the capability of doing that. But an unfortunate side effect of that is that, you know, simply keeping a patient alive is one thing. Really approaching a patient and a person from an overall big picture perspective is a totally different thing. And I think as PTs, we are naturally kind of drawn to that way of looking at the world. And so the developmental side of things is where a NICU physical therapist really comes in and, and is able to enact some, some pretty significant change, I guess, I would say. And so that's really a huge role that the NICU PT plays is approaching these really premature, medically complex infants from that neurodevelopmental, neuroprotective perspective. Uh, and so I hate the phrase, it depends in PT, <laughs> like PT education. That's our favorite, depends, that's depends. our favorite phrase. Shut up and give me an oh answer. Like, are you kidding me? That's a cop out. Um, but it really does. So my treatment approach with an infant that's 23, 24, 25 weeks gestation or postmenstrual age is different than maybe a full-term infant with Down syndrome who's admitted to the NICU with some cardiac anomalies or complexities. So we shift what we do based off of the patient in front of us, just like any other PT in the world. And foundationally, it's a totally different treatment model or care model than what I feel like most of us learned in school. So in school, we were taught the rehabilitative model. We've got a prior level of function, we've got illness or injury, and we've got some functional mobility deficits, and that's what we're addressing. Babies don't have prior levels of function. <laughs> yeah. They're just born. Prior level so of function, N-A. I, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Floating around in some amniotic <laughs> fluid, like... So I can't follow that rehabilitative model. And that was the, the biggest shift that I had to make when I made the transition from the adult world into the NICU world, because that is my background. Prior to working in NICU PT, I worked at our local trauma center for about three years time. And so that's, that's really one of the biggest shifts is following a habilitative model where my primary role is seeing what I've got in front of me, looking at this patient, this baby, and trying to maximize every bit of functional potential that that little one has. Um, so a lot of what we do is following a neuroprotective approach, the idea that you're born with one brain and it's got to last you for your entire life. In an ideal world, these uber preemie babies would not be born until their full term. They wouldn't be born at 28, 32 weeks, they, they'd be cooking the whole, the yeah. whole time. And so, you know, there are some really like fascinating images, like classic images of what your brain structure looks like at some pivotal time points in infant development. And we know that as there's a significant amount of brain development that happens in that last trimester, huh. which when you're born premature, it doesn't just mean that your brain's gonna eat out and stop developing, like that's ongoing. So my role as a NICU PT is to help to support that brain development in as positive a fashion as possible. And then on top of that, which I feel really strongly about this, it's too early in this interview for me to get on my soapbox, uh, but here we, we are. We have soapboxes all over the place, so help yourself. Climbing up on it right now. It doesn't matter how good I am at any of the things that I do. It doesn't matter how great I am at handling infants, at changing diapers for some of our uber, uber preemies, at giving them baths, at giving them massages, at helping them practice their tummy time. Like none of that matters because as much as I love them, I don't get to take these little ones home with me. I would be arrested if I did. <laughs> and there's temptation because they're You're all a baby cute. snuggler, not a baby smuggler. Exactly. Ah. Wonder makes, makes a big difference. difference. So I feel that my primary role is helping to support that family unit so that the parents and the caregivers of these little ones 
are 100% confident and comfortable and fully equipped to do all of the things that they need to do to help their babies thrive and to do so in a way that supports that infant's development. That was a really long way to answer a leading question. I'm sorry. That's why I ask them. That's what we are going for. <laughs> the best interviews are the ones where Catherine and I don't talk very much. <laughs> so when you, you said you originally worked at, at a trauma center, was that like acute care working with adults? Yeah, acute care, ICU. How did you go about training and being comfortable working in the NICU? Yeah, so full transparency here. In all of the lectures that even referenced acute care when I was in school, I was a back of the class kind of gal. And me and my Woo! table partner, yeah, yeah, <laughs> represent. I know those students. My table partner and I, like every time we'd look at each other and we'd roll our eyes, we're like, there's no way, there's no way. Somebody's brain's going to fall out and land on my shoes <laughs> and I'm going to roll someone. No, not doing it. So I never in a million years thought I would wind up in acute care. I was an ortho bro. That's what I thought I was going to do. I had some fantastic clinical experiences in outpatient ortho, had some really great mentorship there. But at my program, we were required to do one inpatient, one outpatient. And I said, all right, told our, oh, what is the name of the person who's DCE. in charge of DCE? Thank you. Told our DCE, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Make it my first one so I can get it out of the way and put me somewhere cool. Like just give it to me. Nothing, <laughs> nothing boring. He said, okay, off to the trauma center you go. And oh my gosh, I was hooked. Like I fell in love with a fast pace on my feet, like quick think, make clinical decisions. And I loved it. And the thought of, okay, I've got to make this decision and think about this path that this treatment or evaluation could go in. And I've got to anticipate what's going to happen if this happens and this happens and this, or if this happens, it might be this. And if this happens, it might be this. So I really liked that quick thinking as I was moving and just, I, I loved that piece of it. So I felt like I got really comfortable in the ICU setting. I had, I was thankful for the opportunity to have had some really great observation experiences in the NICU while I was on that rotation and felt like that was just a fantastic opportunity to put together two things that I really loved. Um, that fast natured, quick thinking, on the move ICU environment, and then also some really skilled manual therapy techniques and, you know, the just the overall big picture perspective that you've got to look at when you look at a neonate. So my path to the NICU may not be the most traditional, but I felt like I got really comfortable in the ICU working in the trauma center with some really sick patients, really critical patients. And then I just got more and more comfortable making my patients smaller and smaller and smaller. <laughs> Was lucky enough to land a gig training in the NICU, which those are, those are hard to come by. Those are few and far between. Unfortunately, NICU PTs sometimes stand as kind of a gatekeeper to the NICU environment, which means that we don't have any young folks up and coming and training. And then as we get older and older and we age out, there's nobody to kind of take the reins over. So that's another soapbox situation. We don't need to get into that. I told you um, we had soapboxes for days. I was <laughs> I was lucky enough to train in the NICU setting. I practiced in both for a little while. And then the more time I spent with the babies, the less time I wanted to spend with the adult babies. So I here you. I am. I hear you. I think it's hilarious that that, that DCE probably, <laughs> as soon as you gave your list of demands, that DCE is probably like, excellent. I know exactly where I'm going to put Katie. <laughs> yeah. I'll show her. And we're good friends to this day. And he just gets a kick out of it every time. Like every time I run into him, every time we get together, he's like, <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. He changed the course you of know, your whole career. It's amazing he really did. Like he really did. <laughs> and I mean, I started off our interview with a really long winded answer to our first question. So I feel like it's perfectly appropriate for me to jump into our what second or third question by getting personal. Yeah. So I 
come to the NICU with a unique background, like we talked about, kind of a non-traditional approach to the NICU, having come from the adult world. But that is combined with some significant family history in the NICU, some personal history in the NICU. So my youngest brother was born when I was 15, which is a pivotal moment in a young girl's life. And he spent the first month or so of his life in the NICU. And then really the better part of the first two years of his life in and out of NICUs and PICUs all across the state of Texas. So that was really my primary exposure to the field of NICU therapy. And I was lucky enough as a student working in our trauma center to have the opportunity to do some observation in the NICU there for just a couple of days and felt like it was just this awesome combination of the ICU setting, that fast-paced nature, the wild stuff all going on all at the same time, the quick clinical decision-making with this really big picture view of our patients, which I really appreciated. And then combined with some really skilled manual techniques that I was able to observe and now have since gotten to learn and implement in our patient population. So it was almost like it was this perfect combination of all of these areas that I was really interested in. And I kind of made my way to it, even though I tried to avoid it for as long as I could. Was that background with your brother? I guess, let me, let me ask it this way. Was your experience that you remember being a teenager, mm-hmm. your experiences of the NICUs and the PICUs and things like that, were those positive memories? Were those traumatic memories? Well, I mean, as much as you want yeah. to get into that, I'm just curious as to how that, how that informed your decisions later on. Yeah, it was, it was definitely a little bit of both. You know, you've got all this joy that comes with gaining a new family member and then also all of these questions and worries as to, okay, is he going to make it through this? And if and when he does, what, what are the next few weeks, months, years going to look like? Yeah, so it was, it was definitely a combination of some some highs and some lows, which I would say translates over into what working as an PT is like. I recently yeah. spoke with Dan Stevenson, who... PT Dan. PT Dan, the, the Mr. Rogers of, of the PT world, a wonderful, wonderful guy. And we talked a lot about that kind of emotional self-management uh, mm-hmm. dealing with, he worked, Dan works in a pediatric oncology setting, which is just, I can only imagine what that would be, would be like, but he did talk about there, you know, there are hard days. And so he, 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 he talked a little bit about how he, you know, kind of just takes care of himself. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience is like in your setting? Yeah, absolutely. I tell people all the time that the highs are really high and the lows are really low. So you think about You think about having a baby and most of the time parents have all of these hopes and dreams and plans for their little ones. And a NICU admission is never part of that plan, right? So anything that the therapy team can do to help a parent adjust to their new normal, adjust to their new situation, is a huge part of helping that infant then thrives within their family unit and and within their life. And so, well, what does that look like? Sometimes for some of our 23, 24-week infants, that looks like helping a parent get to physically touch their baby for the first time, which is a really special experience. And we can be a part of teaching a parent how to do that in a way that helps to calm and soothe their baby as opposed to overstimulating them or overwhelming them. Sometimes that means you help a dad hold his baby for the first time, which, oh my gosh, you talk about tear jerkers like that is so special you help a mom give her baby their first bath like those are the moments that man you can't you can't beat the high that comes from just getting to play a small role in being a really special part of that family unit getting to come together for the first time and on the flip side of that the lows can be really low you know the the mortality rate in the neonatal icu is not insignificant and you get attached to these babies and to these families and sometimes everything possible that can be done from a medical intervention perspective happens and the outcome is still 
not what anyone would hope for. And those are really hard days. Those are definitely really hard days. And I think part of the reason why I avoided the whole pediatric world to begin with was because I was worried that I would personally get too invested in that, given my family's history. And I would have too hard of a time separating my personal and my professional life. But the longer I've done this and the the more I've learned is that really is a is an asset. That's a skill, that's a strength that I have. That empathy is something that does nothing but make me a better therapist. And so over the years, I've learned some tips and techniques and strategies to help to you know, leave work at work and be at home when I'm at home. But I think all in all, you know, not becoming immune to the hurt helps me to celebrate some of those highs that I get to be a part of so much more. Catherine, I remember you saying in an interview a while ago about how you knew you needed a vacation when. Oh, yeah. You yep. Tell the story. You tell it. Yeah. So when I, I mean, I've been practicing for, it'll be five years in September. And initially as a, as a new grad, I think that was one of the things that was hardest for me is like having a barrier of like, I was just find myself like thinking about my patients and people all the time, like on the weekend at home and I uh, able having the ability to create that and create that separation or that distance has has been something that's like hel- helped me because hon- honestly I think if I hadn't improved in that I don't know if I would have been able to continue working as a yeah. as a PT. But what I would had mentioned to Andy a while ago was I can tell sometimes if I'm like need a vacation or if I'm getting burnt out because normal me like reacts really positively naturally when people are excited about how they're doing in therapy. And I can feel I'm getting burnt out when someone is telling me they're like really happy about like now most of it's related to like, I I ran after my kids and I didn't leak or like my pain wasn't, you know, getting in the way of like having sex or whatever they're wanting to do. And if I have to remind myself to like react positively, <laughs> then, then I know I'm like, okay, we're feeling emotionally burnt out. Right <laughs> yeah. uh, so I guess any, like, what is your, like, if you feel comfortable going into more detail on it, like, what is your perspective on on like what what it's helped you be able to kind of create those barriers or or separation yeah I think it's yeah it's it's hard it is absolutely hard and working with adults in the trauma hospital you know you're exposed to secondary trauma through that role as well but for some reason it just feels different when it's a child or and especially when it's a baby Bad things happen to people all the time, but bad things are not supposed to happen to children, right? People get sick, people die, that's a part of life, but babies are not supposed to get sick and die. And nobody wants to talk about that, right? You're not gonna come home from work and share your work stories with your spouse or partner because nobody wants to hear about dead or dying babies. That's not that that's not dinner table discussion, right? And so I have found that really leaning heavily on my work family, my coworkers has been a good strategy for me because they're a lot of the only people in the world who know what it looks like when you're having to go through something wildly traumatic in the NICU setting. So you know, in the moment or immediately following the moment of a traumatic situation, that can be really helpful, even if it's not a full decompression or, you know, let's sit around and hold hands and talk about our feelings. No, but knowing that somebody is living that same thing right alongside you and knowing that by and large, it's 
somebody who cares just as much as you do about what's happening is helpful for providing that solidarity. And then figuring out how outside of that, how to how to deal with it and manage it and move on from it without, you know, just circling the drain, you know, like just dwelling on it and overdoing it with with beating it over and over again. I think that's that's something that I'm is still a work in progress to be honest, but that's been part of the work of being able to work in the NICU for, for a prolonged period of time. So all of the regular like self-care recommendations, I eat lunch outside every day. I have to soak up a little bit of sunshine, gives me a break, gets me away from the constant beeping of the monitors and the sensory overload that comes with that environment. Like I can just soak up some sunshine. I can enjoy some conversation with my coworkers, can eat my lunch and relax and then get back to it. There are days where I drive home from the hospital and I don't play the radio and I don't talk. I just sit there kind of in silence and I decompress and I handle the emotions that need to be handled so that when I walk through my front door, I'm in a better place. And exercise and good sleep and eating well and all of those important things that we know we're supposed to do to take care of ourselves to begin with. So much as sometimes I don't want to, they really do make a difference. And then sometimes just coming home and snuggling the puppies is really what you need to do to get reset and be okay for the next day. I think we have a, a, a record on this podcast of being pro-emotion and recognizing yeah. that we have them and that it's okay to process them and that it, we are better people and therapists when we do this. And Absolutely. We worse at all of those aspects if we just turn ourselves into zombies. Absolutely. Huge fan of the, um, the real therapists too. Those guys know what they're talking about. Yeah. Talk therapy makes a big difference, so big proponent of that. I think we've finally gotten away from where that's a stigmatized thing in our culture, but that's my... I want to I shift a little bit um, yeah. to talking about your work with PT in the community. Now, I became aware of it when CSM was last hosted in San Antonio, which was in your backyard. And I know you were heavily involved in that. Have you been involved in it before uh, before last year? This past year was my first year really intimately being involved with PT in the community. Okay. I had heard of it. I had like supported from afar, but this was my first year really boots on the ground getting involved. So tell us what's tell us what that is. Yeah. So PT in the community is a local effort that was, you know, that the history behind it that I've learned more about it as I've gone along was this idea that for things like CSM, you got this truckload of PTs, PTAs who all come together to these conference sites. And usually we leave a mess and a bar tab and with a feeling of having learned a few new things and gotten to hang out with our PT friends. So the founders of PT in the community got to talking and thinking and probably drink and came up with this idea that we should leave behind something more than that. So they created this initiative to identify local groups in the community, uh, in the cities and towns that CSM is hosted in, and partner with those local groups to be able to give back in an appreciable way. So a few things came together to get me involved this year. Patrick Berner has become a close friend. We adjunct together. And so I've gotten to know him over the past few years that we've been working together. He approached me and said, hey, CSM's in San Antonio. You live in San Antonio. This thing is kind of growing and building and we're able to raise more and more funds every year. And with those funds, we're able to buy some really cool supplies that we're able to donate for our PT in the community initiatives. Is there any way that you would be able to store at your house in San Antonio when CSM is in San Antonio, some of our donated items? And I said, heck yeah, I am all about what this mission stands for. Let's do it. 
send it all to my house. Well, $13,000 later, my house was absolutely overwhelmed with all sorts. I seeing the videos that you were taking of all the, all the stuff that seemed like it was stuffed in every nooks and cranny. Yes. It started out as like a small corner of the guest bedroom and then total fire hazard. I mean, it was up to almost the ceiling in the guest room. It bled into the dining room, the living room. Like our whole house was PT in the community stuff. And then when everyone was in town, a lot of the folks who were leading the initiative, Patrick, Patrick really running the way, were able to come over and get things assembled and ready to go so that we could deliver them to all of the different organizations in, in and around the area that we were supporting. That's awesome. I think that the mission of PT in the community, from, from what I've gathered of it and, and paying attention to what was going on in San Antonio, that it's just, yeah, it's agreed that it, we are a service profession. Mm-hmm. You know, we are, we are in the business of helping people. And even though CSM is a little bit of a gluttonous party sometimes for us to just hang out with our PT friends and yeah, we, we, we go to some lectures and blah, blah, blah. But really it, it sometimes seems a little disingenuous if we don't, if all we're doing there is just taking and taking and taking and taking. So right. I think it's great that that exists out there to, yeah. to give something back. I, I, I agree. And how cool to, you know, not only take the initiative to give back to a community, but, you know, not to dog on things like this, but it, go, it goes beyond a canned food drive or a coat drive or, or something of that nature. And it's intentionally reaching out to organizations that exist in the local community that are already doing really big things, doing really good things and partnering with them to better support them in the good work that they're already doing. And I think that that's really cool. Those are the two main talking points I wanted to hit on. Anything else you want to talk about, Katie? I don't know. I mean, this is, this is like I said, if you got soapboxes you want to stand on, we can stack them on top of each other if you want. Doesn't matter to me. So, so I have so I have another thing out because I stalked you and I found this bio of you that was I don't even really know where it's from, but it was the first thing that came up on Google. And so I was reading your bio on there and it oh said, You're, are you are you pursuing a Ph.D.? I'm working on a Ph.D. Oh. Yes, that's why I got that's why I got these bags under my eyes. <laughs> it's a good thing we stopped <laughs> recording the video. <laughs> so tell us about that process. Yeah. So through through PT school, I always kind of kicked around in the back of my mind, like, hey, this would be a really cool thing to do someday. And there were a few classes where I helped to tutor some of my classmates and got some feedback. Like, I feel like I'm sitting here just toot, toot, tooting my horn, and I don't want that to be what comes across. But got some really good feedback from some classmates that, yeah, yeah you take these concepts that I'm having trouble understanding and you're able to put them in a way that resonates and that I feel like I can understand quite a bit better. So that was something that I had kind of kicked around for a while. The first time I ever took a student as a clinical instructor, I was like, oh my gosh, this is the best thing in the world. Because if, if I could pick one thing, if someone were to ask me, what is the one thing that's made you a better physical therapist? 100% it's being around students. Because not only do you have to demonstrate your own clinical skills, but you have to be so comfortable with your rationale and your clinical decision-making process that you can explain it to a student who is like a little chihuahua, super excited about the world and going to like be the best PT that there ever was and wants to know the answer to every single question that ever existed in all of humankind. And so you kind of- it looks at you with just like- like deer in the headlights. Holy yeah. crap, what's actually going on? I have to touch a real patient today. Are you kidding me? Yes. Yeah. So you've got to be able to really, you know, I felt like that was a pivotal moment in my career where it's like, okay, I really got to know what I'm talking about here. Like I can fake it till I make it up until this point. These students are asking questions and I got to be able to know my stuff. So I just loved the process of being surrounded by students as a clinical instructor had the opportunity to pick up an adjunct gig and have kind of been increasing my responsibilities with that. 
over the years. And that really cemented the idea that, okay, this long-term physical therapy educator could be the route for me. Like this is something that that I've felt like I've considered for a while. A lot of things are coming to fruition to make it happen. And I could really see myself taking off and going down this route and having a really fulfilling career. So the path to faculty, Andy, you know this because you're living this, can be a little bit difficult given some of the requirements that, that faculty members have to obtain. So I knew that as a relatively young pup without, you know, 20 years of experience and a whole mess ton of specialty certifications that I likely was going to have to be part of the 50% that had a terminal degree in order to teach full time. And when I think about what I love about the physical therapy field, it's the fact that it's so versatile and that I could work in the adult ICU for a number of years prior to transferring over to the NICU. And I didn't have to go back and complete some additional training. Like I was able to do a really good on-the-job training program with some great competencies and some good mentorship, and I could pivot in my career. So I felt like, you know, the, the path towards uber specialization maybe wasn't wasn't the route for me for teaching. So the PhD seemed like more of a natural fit. I'm also full of questions and a total nerd. So it's working out well from that regard as well. Yeah, so I'm in my second year of my PhD program. I should be finished with my didactics by this time next year. And I'll take my qualifying exam and make my way through dissertation and have that final terminal degree stamp barring any unforeseen life circumstances. So it's a PhD in physical therapy through Texas Women's University. Love that program. Anyone considering a terminal degree, even remotely, would strongly recommend it. It's a hybrid program, so it's super flexible. You can continue to live where you are and work where you are, travel down to either Dallas or Houston while you're doing your thing from a clinical practice perspective. And it's really geared towards PTs who are thinking about going into full-time teaching or research. Everything we've done has been super practical, super functional, made a lot of really close friends and have learned so much through the process. And have really enjoyed it. So my focus is on the intersection between physical therapy practice and education and the idea of disability bias and ableism within the profession. Interesting. That's the area that I would like to take for my for my dissertation and probably going to be my research pathway for for the future of my career. I mean, we can talk about that all you want. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like here we go, soapbox climbing up. By and large, as a profession, we are a group of non-disabled individuals and the systems that are in place are what kind of allow that to continue. And we have an intimate relationship with the disability community. But in terms of representation, like there are not very many disabled PTs. There are even fewer disabled faculty members. And as much as we would like to think that we're welcoming and we're inclusive of those of all abilities, really when it gets down to it, maybe we, we definitely fall short in a lot of areas. I think if you were to survey 100 PTs, 99 of us would say, no, I'm not. I don't have any bias towards disability. Look at me, I'm helping them. Well, yeah. well-meaning ableism is just as harmful of a type of ableism as overt ableism, you know? So we, we definitely have a lot of room to grow in that area. And I'm hoping that, that this future line of work that I've got envisioned for myself with all the stars in my eyes and the hope in my heart is going to be being able to bridge the gap between the disability studies world and the disability community and current and future physical therapists so that we're better able to work together to really provide a much higher quality of care. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's amazing. And I couldn't agree more, to be honest with you. <laughs> 
I, so yeah, I'm curious that have you come across any research or patient surveys of patients who are physically disabled and their their opinions or perspectives on the therapists that they've worked with and the fact that they're are that's a really good question there there's been a little bit of that but I think this this further goes back to the root of the problem is that so many people who are doing this work like there there aren't very many people out there who are looking into these relationships and doing this research but so many people who are are still looking at it from the perspective of I've got my research question and I'm yeah. going to ask it and then I'm going to go to this community and execute this research plan that I've got this study not a lot of it is coming from the ground floor of embracing the disability community and bringing those key players into the discussion to say hey what what do you want us to look at what are you struggling with what can we make better what is your perspective on this so it's still following that same paternalistic medical model of care even you know as as much as we're trying to to push against it and to be better i feel like we're still kind of missing the mark in a lot of ways and that's a blanket statement. There are definitely some rock stars out there who are doing some really good work in this area, but there's not as much as I think needs to be done. And, and I think that there's a lot of room to grow. I think that's fascinating. I think it's great. And best of luck to you on that. Thank you. Yeah. It, you know, when I was making my way into this, this idea, these thoughts that I had for pursuing this as a line of study, it's hard, right? It's hard to critically analyze yourself and your profession and something that is so meaningful to you and to be able to look and say, okay, maybe that 24-hour wheelchair project that I did when I was in PT school, like so many students across the U.S. did, yeah, you know, maybe even though I felt like I learned a lot from that experience and that was really meaningful from the perspective of somebody who lives in a wheelchair, I could see now how that would be really harmful and not helpful and you know just being able to critically self-reflect and initiate some of those conversations and being willing to to make ourselves uncomfortable to look into ways of how we can be better i think is a really hard thing to do but a really important thing to do well i can't wait to see the research that you produce that will change the physical therapy world and put it on its ear yeah. yeah by and large this world was not designed for the disability community and i know that and i see that and i live that with my brother on a really deep and and personal level and so you know my brain began the process of thinking about that from a physical accessibility lens okay, these stairs or this threshold or this width of this doorway prevents a large group of our population from accessing this area. Um, but the more I learn about it, it's so much deeper than just the physical accessibility side of things. It's the social lens of it and it's the healthcare system and um, so many ways that so many factors interact. And then you think about it from an intersectionality perspective of the populations and subgroups of people who are more likely to have some disabling conditions and how the, the factors of racism and sexism and all of those things all play in to all of this to really impact people in a big way. I'm rambling. I'm sorry. No, I think it's, no. well, it, it, you just reminded me. So I work in a, in a neuro rehab facility. We, it's primarily TBI, but we, all things neuro rehab really. And I've worked there a long time and I feel like, you know, of course I feel like I, I am an advocate and an ally of the disabled community and this and that and the other. And I, I think on the whole, yeah, I think I do a, a better job than the average schmo on the street. Right. But I realized I was talking with a patient of mine who is a, a very intelligent man who can advocate for himself very well, has profound physical disabilities. Okay. Relies on a power chair for all of his transportation and all of his mobility and is essentially a max assist to total care, total care for all the rest of his care. Mm -hmm. Okay. And realizing that 
he has been advocate. He's been trying to get involved in more like volunteer opportunities at other neuro rehab facilities to to talk with people who are in similar situations as him, who are maybe newer on their rehab journey than he is, and and you know everyone in our clinic is like, yeah, hey, that's great, go do that. You know, you'd be great at this and the blah blah blah. And then realizing that he wasn't able to do it because our scheduling system was such that his day was so exhausting to him that by the time the the volunteer opportunities arose, he was like, I need to be in bed starting my nighttime routines. And was like, Oh yeah. Didn't even, didn't even think that, you know, once the therapy day ends, Oh yeah, you still maybe want to go out and do things. And we didn't give you that opportunity because we were just concerned about managing your tone, you know? Right. Yeah. Didn't even, didn't bother to even consider what he might want to do with the rest of his life. Yeah. So, so shameless guilty. plug, there's a new special interest group, I guess, forming within the, okay, HPA, the catalyst is now the Academy for Leadership and Innovation. Hope I didn't botch that. Yes. I just got an email from HPA, the catalyst like yesterday. So who knows? Yes. They've changed. I'll look we, it up. I'll, I'll look it up and I'll put it in the show notes there. Perfect. The Disability Justice and Anti-Ableism Catalyst Group is a Mm. newly formed group within the Academy for Leadership and Innovation, aka HPA The Catalyst. And we're newly formed, we're we're still kind of getting getting things going, but that's an area where I see a lot of some really cool research coming out. Oh yeah, I think there's a lot of a lot of room to grow in that area tons and it's i i can see this being a really good resource to the pt community in at large yeah i will find the link for that and and add it into our show notes that's fantastic i think that'll be a great resource that i'm for personally i'm going to look into yeah something to start implementing within the pt program andy making waves you need any (laughs) guest lecturers your girl's trying to get herself a faculty gig this could go on the cv there you mm-hmm. go. There you go. <laughs> All right. Katie, I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. And any, uh, I'll give you the opportunity. Any parting thoughts? Or how about this? Do you have? Oh, okay. I have oh. some parting thoughts. Okay. This might right. be, this might be another 20 minutes. Y'all buckle up. All right, cool. Uh-oh. Yeah. So we talked about how my path to NICU is maybe not as traditional as some. So I get questions all the time. How do I get into the NICU? How do I get a NICU gig? And you could do what I do and just get really comfortable in the ICU and then weasel your way into the NICU as soon as as they'll let you. But maybe some more productive routes could involve residencies, fellowships. There are some NICU-specific fellowships and some fantastic pediatric residency opportunities out there. I understand that that's not an option for everyone. It, it wasn't an option for me to relocate my life and everything I did to be able to take part in an experience like that, but that can be a great way to get some good NICU-specific experience. Anything in the world of early childhood intervention outpatient pediatrics, home health pediatrics, the more you can get comfortable just being around children, being around both typically developing children and children with some developmental delay, um, you know, the more comfortable you can get in that setting, usually the better some of those skills can translate over into the acute side and then any specifically any kind of acute or inpatient pediatric experience that you can get is really helpful in just getting confident and comfortable managing lines and tubes and vents and working in an interdisciplinary team with your occupational and speech therapists obviously but also your respiratory therapists and your child life specialists and your pediatricians and your pediatric subspecialists and and everybody who's a member of the care team on the acute and inpatient side. And then developmental follow-up clinics usually take care of a lot of NICU graduates. So that can be a great area as well to get involved and to get some good experience. And then, you know, as you get yourself more and more comfortable with seeing younger and younger NICU grads, that could be a really nice transition into the neonatal ICU itself end of that soapbox there you go it's a good one <laughs> oh i gotta tell you my favorite thing about being a NICU PT. how do we even how do we even miss this all right so what's my favorite part about being a NICU PT? 
getting to experience the snuggles is nice. Getting to help families experience some of those really awesome firsts is also a really cool thing. But the thing that I love the most about being a NICU PT is that I get to take care of a patient and I am, you know, one of the things that drives me nuts about PTs sometimes is that we silo ourselves. Oh, I'm an ortho bro. Oh, I'm a neuro guy. Oh, I'm a cardiopalm dude. Like whatever. We're all PTs. And I get the beautiful opportunity to have the ortho bro and the cardiopalm dude and all of the things all at the same time, all in the same patient. So I'm looking at the musculoskeletal system and the cardiopulmonary system, and I'm checking the baby's skin integrity, and I'm doing a lot of neuro work, and I'm getting to do lots of family education, and I'm getting to work in an acute care setting, and I'm getting to put a plug in for pelvic health for our new moms, and I'm just getting to do all of the things that I love so much, and it's all the same patient all at the same time. How cool is that? What other field do you get to do that in? I think you might have found the perfect job. Yeah, that is really cool. I love it. Katie, how can people find you if you want if you want to be found, that is? Well, now that we've fully blown open my anonymity. Yeah, you're not doing a very good job with that. Terrible, terrible. But that's okay. I'm on Twitter at NICUPT. Nope, I'm not. I'm at Neonatal PT. <laughs> you're you're, you're Oh, Your my little name username. on Twitter is NICUPT. That is. And my hashtag is hashtag NICUPT. That'd be, the, that'd be the greatest way to find me. Slide into those DMs. You can Google me like Catherine did and find some <laughs> weird bio that provides some details on the fact that I'm in a PhD program. Hopefully it doesn't have my mom's maiden name and my home address and my social Creeper security like number on it. There. My no. goodness. Or you I'm can just. That, it really wasn't that hard. It was. Katie, <laughs> for for the listeners, just Google Katie Franklin. What did I? What did I search? Kate. Oh, oh, I googled community engagement APTA Katie Franklin. Oh, it was the first first thing to pop up. That's how you find her. See, that's what you're Amazing. known for. There you go. Okay. Or if all else fails, you can meet me at the Alamo. <laughs> you know what katie if i'm ever in san antonio you can take me to the alamo and you can change my mind perfect all right perfect we say we like to say this is inappropriate but i'm going to tell you anyway we may not always remember last night but we will always remember the alamo <laughs> dr katie franklin is a physical therapist in san antonio texas a delegate for that state's chapter of apta and a texan's texan Waves is a production of APTA Michigan. It is co-hosted by Dr. Katherine Klein and me, Andy Wicks. You can download and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on social media at APTAMIWaves or online at www.aptami.org podcasts. Thank you for listening and may all your documentation always be done on time.